Most bankers aren't ready to help you until after their third cup of coffee. But with Central National Bank's after-hours service, you don't have to wait for the bank lobby to open to get help. You can contact us from 6 to 8.30 in the morning or from 5 to 10 in the evening, and we'll connect you to a real, live, local person who can answer questions and fix problems seven days a week. Bank different. Bank central. Central National Bank. Member FDIC. Coming up on the payoff, Courtney's honesty about her life and drinking history are absolutely riveting. And the miracles that have happened to her in sobriety might really make this recovery thing seem worth it if you're struggling. Sit back and relax and get ready for an unfiltered story with the spiritual solution. But first, Big Bro. Stand by the ocean floor. Hey, hey. <laughs> Courtney. I'm unrolling the uh, toilet paper so I can get my tissues ready. <laughs> All right, hold on. I got to do one thing. I got to switch my headphones. Give me one second. All right, so Courtney, first of all, thank you for taking the time. Oh, thanks for asking. It was a shocker, actually, but um, it's exciting and it's nerve-wracking, you know, but um, I think you're doing a great thing. Yeah, I appreciate it. And and people that uh, are willing to do this. I heard somebody say just a little bit. I was actually at a meeting before I came here and a, and a woman said, um, you know, when you show somebody who you are, it's just so much easier for them to show you who who they are. And also you just yeah. you drop all the crap. Like once you let oh. once you let people see who you are, you drop it all. You know, I think that's one of the things that I love about you and AA is that because I hate superficial stuff, you know, it's just not the way that I was made up. And, um, that's all what it is, you know, especially like real friendships. And all right, but let's get right to it. What is your sobriety date? So my sobriety date is October 11th, 2007. So how many years is that? 14? 14. Yep. Crazy. When was your first drink? So my first drink was very anticlimactic, actually. It was with my older sister. She's two years older and my best friend. And um, it was a concoction of who knows what in a Snapple bottle. And um, we drank at my mom's house. And I think I went to bed. Um, And Martina stayed up with my sister that's your friend yep and she got drunk and yeah i think it's kind of um an ironic story because of the past that i took but that was my first drink now my first hit of pot was more indicative of the past that i was going to take when i smoked for the first time um i remember going into my sister's room and i think i asked her if she had pot I told her I smoked it before, which was completely not true. And we smoked for the first time together. And I remember thinking, you know, you got to pretend like you know what you're doing, you know? So when did you have that first drink? Like how old? Uh, seventh or eighth grade. Okay. So 13 or 14. Um, and how about and the pot? Around, yeah, same time. And then in eighth grade. So I think in eighth grade, you're 14, right? Or yeah, 13, 13 or 14. Yeah. So um, I actually dabbled in acid at that time, too. So it was very quick. Like, I started drinking, trying pot, and then tried acid, like, all within that, you know, year. What the heck is it like to trip on acid when you're in eighth grade? What's that it's experience so, like? I don't think, I don't really know about the acid that I took. You know, um, I've probably done it maybe 10 times, um, you know, probably from like eighth grade to sophomore year of high school. I, and you know what, like sometimes I'll even look at trees now and think that reminds me of when I was on acid. I don't, I don't know, you know, just like an out of body experience. You know, I was a rebel kid. I was a rebel kid for sure. I love getting to know people like this because I know you, but I don't know all this stuff. So you're, 
in eighth grade or and you start to drink and you smoke pot how does it, the engine get rev like that so you know when i'm in eighth grade my older sister's a sophomore in high school so she is you know, experimenting, drinking, and all that. So that's my in with alcohol and parties. Um, then I get a job at Dairy Queen. And the manager, he was like 18, name was Todd. And, you know, I started drinking 40s and doing acid with Todd and this other kid, you know, after work. And it's crazy because, you know, I grew up with these girls since grade school. We went to high school together. They're still my friends today. So these girls, when I ended up coming out as an alcoholic, you know, they were kind of shocked because I didn't abuse and drink and drug with them all the time. You know, I I had certain friends that I would, and I, I wasn't doing this consciously. It was just, I don't know, I just, I had the the Dairy Queen thing, and then I had the Heather thing, and then I had, you know, my friends who were doing their own experimentation, so. And Heather's your uh, sister. Yep, Heather's my sister. Yeah, so it, it accelerated. I definitely, it was off to the races early on. Did you have any awareness? Like I tell people, I, I knew because my mom did a pretty good job of giving us a heads up that it was running all throughout my, my father's family. Did you know that it was in your blood? Is it in your in your family? 1000%. Yeah. Um, so my dad, you know, both my parents are alcoholics. My dad um, had DUIs, one of which I was in the car with. I'll never forget that getting pulled over and, um, you know. How old were you? I was, um, it was less than eight. I don't know, like eighth grade, ninth grade. Okay. Yeah. Definitely formative years. Um, but yeah, and then my cousin, on my mom's side I mean it's just all over I have a younger sister too she's actually sober two more years than I am so you know it's in your family and you start to see it accelerating you're hanging out with the Dairy Queen squad and then you're you're hanging out with your friends from grade school you went to a Catholic grade school right you go to a Catholic high school um yeah when did you did you start to think like man this is working almost working a little too well or was it just a, a ton of fun yeah, no, I don't think I made that connection. I what I, what was running through my head at that time was I never want to be like my mom and dad, you know. And it's ironic because you know I would sometimes be pissed at my mom for drinking. And then I remember one time just we had she drank wine, but we had an old liquor cabinet, and I just dumped everything down the drain because I was so pissed at her, you know. And then and then thinking later on like, oh man, I, I wish I didn't do that because then I could have drank that, but. Um, I wasn't, I wasn't thinking that I had a problem. You know, if anything, I was thinking, I don't think I was able to like articulate this then, but I was thinking I was like a bad kid or a lost kid, you know? Um, cause I got in trouble with the cops when I was in eighth grade. I had this party at this, um, people's house that I babysat for when they were away. I literally had my rights written to me I mean I, I I ended up drinking one night in high school and just getting so drunk and confused like my vision was going and I ended up really far away from the house and my mom like I ended up at a Wawa and somebody called the cops and so like I wasn't thinking oh I have an alcohol problem I was thinking my childhood is so messed up and I'm drinking and I'm lost and I don't have good parents that's what I was thinking did you see it as a solution almost like I need this to get through? Uh, no, I don't think I, I thought that. I think I was just doing it, you know? Yeah. I wasn't doing it to piss anybody off. I wasn't, you know, I, I just was, I guess, trying to have fun. I don't know. <laughs> was it fun? I mean, it sounds like, I mean, it's so funny because I'm another alcoholic. It sounds like fun. The babysitting thing is pretty crazy. I mean, that's aggressive. That even, <laughs> I'm like, wow. Like, Courtney was pretty, pretty wild. Yeah, yeah. And, like, my friends in high school, like, they, you know, the Poconos, just a couple hours away. People would rent a house and do, like, the prom thing. Like, you know, later on in high school, I think people had to deal with the cops, but no one was dealing with the cops in eighth grade. Exactly. You know, like, 
I don't know. I just, I was making bad decisions early on, you know, and, and maybe it was like a form of rebellion. Maybe it was trying to fill a hole. Um, I think regardless, you know, it's just the journey that I had. I don't think it was until college that I actually thought I had a problem. Yeah, definitely. How does the ball move forward? Like you're in grade school, you're kind of ahead of the game. Uh, how is it when you get to high school? What's your drinking like there? Yeah, so high school is pretty much, you know, weekend parties. I have this boyfriend, we smoke pot, we drink, but like, you know, I'm into the boyfriend and whatever. Then I get to college. I break up with that boyfriend in high school, get to college. You know, everybody is drinking in college, right? So I'm drinking. People talk about blackouts in college. Uh, you know, I can relate to that. There was nothing really that stuck out in undergrad as far as like trouble is concerned you know I, I hit the trouble mark early on and then as people were like experimenting with like mushrooms and and doing all kinds of crazy stuff I was more into like let me find a group that's going to chill with me drink with me smoke pot with me it was kind of weird it was kind of like you know elevated early on you know, seventh day free and then college time, it kind of, it didn't taper off um, in the sense of my drinking. I was definitely doing plenty of that. It's just, I didn't have any crazy stories until graduate school. Um, was that conscious at all, by the way, to make the move to kind of back off to like maybe a more relaxed crowd? Yeah, it was just more comfortable for me because I didn't have to socialize. I wasn't interested in that. We would hit a party, but then we would go back and really get, you know, we would do our own thing. Also, we did not want to share the weed. We did not want to share the alcohol, <laughs> you know. So we were we were in it with, you know, the same kind of motive. How did alcohol affect your relationships just in general, romantically and, and with your friends? Like, did you become more withdrawn? It really, everything escalated when I was in graduate school and then in my 20s big time big time um so like my I had this one relationship in grad school I met the guy he lived locally to where I you know outside Philly and um I would like pop in and out of grad school because I only went to classes four days a week and then I would come home and like drink with him and god it was volatile it was so volatile um, you know, fighting and jealousy and um, tons of drinking. In um, undergrad, I ended up getting a DUI locally in, in the suburbs here. And I remember... The suburbs thinking, of Philadelphia, that's where you are. Yeah. Yeah, and I remember thinking... Um, I, I remember asking the police officer, actually, like, uh, like how bad is this going to be? Like, what are the, what are the consequences? And I remember sitting in the backseat of the cop car. He dropped me off. Like my mom didn't have to pick me up or anything. He dropped me off at the house. And, um, he said, um, you know, you'll just get ARD. It's your first offense. Like kind of shrugged it off. And I was like, oh, okay. And I had plenty of people in my life, you know, my friends that I grew up with, whose older brothers had the DUI. It wasn't like, common but it wasn't unheard of so I kind of just told myself all right this is bad luck right um and then yeah the cop was right I ended up just getting the ARD and when I had to do the safe driving alcohol classes um I remember people had like multiple DUIs and I was like they're dumb you know like that'll never happen to me and um yeah I, I lost my license for a little bit but I had the boyfriend to you know to drive me around and it just wasn't super uh, inconvenient, you know, super, it wasn't super scary. It was scary, but, you know, you basically just pay a fine and go to the class and lose your license for a little bit, and that's it. You're, you're an attractive uh, woman. Uh, I would imagine you were an attractive younger girl. You're from, like, a, you know, the suburbs. Like, did you feel, was there any entitlement? Like, for instance, when you get in trouble with the police officer and I'm hearing how bad is this going to be? In terms of what? Like in terms of just like, with, yeah, getting away with stuff. Like, oh, yeah, you got dropped off. Yeah, That's a pretty big yeah. deal. Yeah, you know, I just, I don't know what I don't know. And kind of, um, yeah, I mean, in retrospect, that makes 
it, it makes me think, wow, that was lucky, you know, but no, I was never the girl that like batted her eyelashes or anything like that. Okay. You mentioned your family, but you don't want to be like your parents. Did that affect oh. your drinking at all? No, but it was just that back and forth that I was referring to with, uh, you know, dad's not reliable, dad's drinking, dad's selfish, mother is constantly drunk, you know? Dad's drinking too, but he's not in the picture. My parents divorced when I was like 10. There, there might have been moments he, like throughout grade school or high school or even college where, um, you know, I thought, gee, I wonder, but if that doesn't really stick out to me because there was such an excuse of that age range and experimenting. And the fact that, you know, especially in high school, all my friends were drinking, you know, there wasn't anything crazy. Like the whole party and getting arrested at any grade was, you know, I don't, I don't have a good set of parents. That's why I did that. Yeah. You know, I'm a lost kid, you know? I have an, like a, a very strong bond with you through just being your friend and also the fact that you're an alcoholic. So it's like, you know, it's compounded. It's real strong. But I don't know what it's like to be a female alcoholic. Like, is there anything unique about that? You know, I would say. Because you walk, the reason I ask is you walk into an, my, I walk into my first meeting and there was more guys than, than, than women. And it was a mixed meeting. And, and that's still sort of um, the scenario. Not all the time, but you get what I'm saying. Yeah, I can appreciate the the question. I think what what comes up for me is the fact that like you know, I was in this community and this you know, my mom had friends and I had friends and you know, I'm in this community where I'm, you know, creating a reputation for myself, uh, a negative reputation for myself and um I think that was more darkening like you know the cloud over me then you know here I am a female drinking a lot you know I I being a female and being a drinker certainly lends some more risk in terms of like sexual trauma or you know people taking advantage in that way and you know there was there was you know, definitely decisions that I made in the sexual arena that I wouldn't have made as a sober woman. But, um, you know, again, I think back on the decisions I made, particularly when I went from like Narber to media, when I was like in a sophomore and blacked out and ended up at that Wawa where somebody called the cops. Like, I mean, Lord have mercy. I could have been murdered. You mm -hmm. know? Yeah. I was just, you hear about that stuff. You hear about blackouts now and sobriety and it's, it's terrifying. And it's, yeah. it's terrifying yeah. to think that people go through that uh, today. You know, like it's, you're basically, it's basically time travel, uh, but it's the scariest kind of time travel you could ever experience or not experience, I guess. How, does, does it start to affect your life as you get closer to the breaking point? Like, or, or does it start to really spill over into your school, into your career? Or, or are there times, because I know for me, if there, I finally passed a point where I was like, I got to stop this, but, uh, but I don't want to like, for instance, like the consequences just were really never great enough until they were, but when did you start to really have consequences? Yeah. So it was after grad school, I got a job. Um, you know, I went to this, I went into this like, um, occupational therapy program at this private Jesuit school. Somehow I made it through undergrad and grad, got the second DUI, then got my job. And I'll tell you, Pete, like, because of the childhood, I just, I've always wanted my, my own paycheck and my own job so I could just, like, live my life. Like, I just wanted separation and independence. Um, so I get the job. It's a dream job. Like, how did I ever get this job? I don't know. I have no idea. Like, that night before the interview, you know, with this boyfriend, we just get hammered and I go in hungover. Like, I don't know. I have, it's just crazy, you know, um, to think that I got so lucky. Um, but anyway, did, so it, affect, did it affect the, inter did it affect the interview negatively? I don't know. I got the top. <laughs> okay. You know, 
it's just, it's, you know, that just fuels, you're good, Court. You're good. You've got this. You know what I mean? Um, so anyway, 2005 is when I graduate. I start working. 2007 is when I get the second DUI. So I, from 2005 to 2007, meet this guy. This guy is the love of my life. Like, oh, my God. Yeah, we're it's volatile. Yeah. But, you know, he fills all my boxes. He's family-oriented. Now, he's family-oriented. The family hangs out together all the time. They're super close. But, you know, we are boozing it up at 10 a.m. with mimosas on a Saturday morning, you know? Um meeting at the bar at five o'clock and not coming home till two o'clock on a Wednesday night. Like, um, and I did that, you know, while I was working, I remember, um, being in the, working in the ICU in this hospital with this guy who was so medically fragile. Um, uh, my job is to help mobilize people and get them up. You know, they're super sick. So this guy's sitting on the edge of the bed and his heart rate is just super high He's shaking, and I'm behind him holding him up so he can sit up on the edge of the bed. And my head is kind of like next to his head. And I'm saying something like, um, are you feeling okay? Are you doing a good job? Something. And there's a nurse in the room because he's, again, so medically complex, and the physical therapist is in the room. And he turns to me and he goes, what were you drinking? And I'm like, shit. You know? Yeah. This guy smells booze on me. And I said, I'm sorry, I just had coffee, you know, like totally played it off. And, um, you know, fortunately, it did, nothing came of that. But it was one of those moments where you're, you know, your stomach drops and your heart rate shoots up and you're just like panicked. And you, you know? blow, and you blow right through it. You know, I had some, I can think of, a, I have an exact similar experience. I was working for a basketball team and we had a day game. We never had day games. And, uh, the nighttime, you know, Friday night, or it was like a Martin Luther King Day game. So Sunday night, I, you know, drank all night. And I remember I was at my desk and the guy I worked for came up behind me and asked me about something. And he was just like, gee, he's like, dude, you smell. He didn't even say dude, because that's not how we talked, you know. He was an executive, but he talked about how I smelled and just reeked of booze. And I, like, same as you, your heart drops. And looking back at my history, I know that I drank behind situations like that you know, just to quiet that voice in my head. So it only got worse and worse. But in reality, and it sounds like it was for you, that's a stop sign that I just, normal people don't blow through those stop signs. Right. Isn't that the kicker? Yeah. Yeah. Like the normal people. And this is where that whole phenomenon of like normal comes into play because, you know, I get the second DUI and um, like, of course, somebody normal wouldn't, wouldn't drink after that right and it was it was a DUI where I'm going down this road and I don't even think I'm going that fast actually it's you know probably 25 miles an hour 30 and I'm going like maybe 45 and this uh car comes out in front of me and I we t-bone and it's it's nighttime I was at the bar and I'm on my way home it's actually like 11 o'clock it's not even like terribly you know it's not like three in the morning and it was a girl, a young girl. I was probably 26 at the time. Um, and, you know, like, man, I broke my ankle in that car accident. She got medevac to a, a hospital downtown in Philadelphia. And um, I think she sustained a mild concussion, but that was it. Like, holy crap, I could have killed that kid. How, um, drunk, did you, how drunk did you think you were? Not bad, not bad. And to see, I wish I could tell you what my BAC was, but you know, blood alcohol level. Yeah, yeah. It was, it was, um, you know, definitely. I was wasted, you know, because I pregame. You pregame before you go out, and then you go out, and then you know, this way you save money too, right? So you're drinking your beverages at home, and then you can have a couple drinks at the um, bar, and then you know, not spend the terrible amount of money and then come home now I'm like coming home to my mom I'm living with my mom I had broken up with the boyfriend so that was just like you know how are you going to get through that we were together for a while and um yeah it was just like and you know what I thought the first thought I had was 
holy shit, I need some gum, I'm going to get caught. Not, holy shit, I hope she's okay, you know? Yeah. And, um, yeah, I went to the hospital. I got, my mom picked me up. Um, what was that scene took, like with your mom? I mean, did she? I mean, my poor mother, um, you know, she is an alcoholic. She's a functioning alcoholic. She, um, you know, raised the three, us, us three sisters, um, worked two jobs. Um, and she just didn't have any coping skills. Her mom died when she was 16. Um, and I think she, you know, is a result of that and, you know, my dad's stuff and whatever. The bottom line is that she it doesn't handle things. She lives in denial a lot. Even to this day, if I mention or joke about jail or something like that, like, you know, she, she just does not appreciate that, you know, yeah. she's a very loving woman. She's a very patient woman. So when she picks me up or I'm in trouble, you know, one time she caught me sneaking in the window of our, you know, house, like, you know, she'll just like flare her nostrils at me. There's no consequences. There were no consequences in my house growing up. In high school, we would have parties all the time at my house. My mom would drink and pass out, you know. And one time, she even came into the room. There was five of us in there. Heather was having a party. We were smoking a bong, passing it around, passing it around. She walks in, and she's like, hey, guys, you guys doing okay? Okay. You know, what are you doing? Oh, nothing. We're just hanging out. And she closes the door. Like, if you couldn't get any more caught in that moment, like smoke filled room then I don't know what you know and she she just she couldn't rein us in we were too at least Heather and I we were too rebellious well and you mentioned it too she didn't have the coping skills for what she was going through in her life and guess what like that could be that sounds like how if I was lucky enough to be functional I would be as an adult you don't have a playbook for those situations if you're if you're an alcoholic that's active Right. I mean, like, you don't know what to do. My dad, who was a functional alcoholic, would have freaked out and slammed the bong over my head. You know, <laughs> like, I don't think and probably not over my head, but you get what I'm saying. Like, there's a way to react um, that probably wouldn't be healthy. We lived in fear of my dad, um, whereas you didn't have consequence. My dad did an incredible job with, the, with, with what he was given, like an incredible job. He went to work every day. He helped raise us. He set an example as far as being there and working hard. And when it was time for affection, he did, he did give me that too. But I mean, he was an alcoholic, you know, and that's, yeah. it's that, it's that simple. So you, I didn't know what to expect. And, and he didn't know, you know, he was never given the, the, the manual of life skills that I needed um, to survive as an alcoholic who got sober. Yeah, and, you know, I don't know what it was like for you, but, you know, growing up, I blamed her and, and just criticized her. And even though I got away with stuff, it was like she wasn't the mom that she was supposed to be. And I don't know if you, like, you know, did that for your dad. Like you I, know, I didn't. I was scared of him, but I had, like, my parents did a really good job of, like, keeping it together. You know, like, we had we had a very stable environment. Um, he was unstable, right, um, as an alcoholic. My mom was not. But uh, no, we had a, a stable environment, but I was terrified of him. And that's not normal, you know? Yeah, yeah. But the perspective that you share, you know, I think is indicative of somebody who's worked a program and been able to, like, process that, you know? Mm -hmm. it's, you just speak about it a little bit more um, factually and, and gently, you know? Mm -hmm. Compassionately. So, okay, where, where did we last talk? We talked about, um, oh, you got an oh, yeah. oh, the accident. Okay, okay. So All right, I so at this point, though, I am working in, like, a, a health profession. So I am in deep shit with the second DUI. And what I happens? I don't know it. You know, I don't know it at the time, but I, I mean, just talk about, like, panic and not being able to sleep and scared. Um, so I am... I have to report this DUI to the board, the state board, for, to, in order to keep my license. And then they've got to figure out what they're going to do with me and whether or not I get to keep my license. Now, this profession is my identity. It is what has made me proud as a human being. And so what happens if that gets taken away 
And so this is when, um, you know, things start to get really tough, but also things that kind of lead into my getting sober. So, you know, I'm back and forth with the boyfriend, okay? So I'm, like, wasted and now, you know, doing drugs, and I'm like, okay. You're, and, you're in, like, and you're in a very unhealthy relationship. Exactly, yeah. Um, I decide that I'm going to, um, I was crazy. I decided that I was going to team up with mothers kids from driving, and uh, that's how I was going to fix this DUI, and I was going to completely change that. I'm so messed up on drugs. I'm so wasted, and I have this, like, yeah, yeah, you're just going to, uh, you know, start a program and, and just, like, turn this around, like, 180. <laughs> and, you know, like, that is just not realistic. Is this one you know? particular like, instance, or was this over a period of time you hatched this plan? No, this, this is just, like, one night where I'm trying to figure out how I'm going to fix this problem, but it's like, oh, here's my idea. I'm going to connect with Mothers Against Drunk Driving, but I stop drinking, and I'm going to, like, fix this, and they're going to see that I'm a good person, you know, and I can keep my license and all that stuff. You know, I was so far from being able to help anyone or be able to, like, represent an organization like that, you know, especially in the state that I was in when I was thinking of the idea. So <laughs> I end up, um, I end up um, having to... I get a lawyer. Okay. Then I find out that I have to go to jail. Um, I find out that I'm going to go to jail for 10 days. No, this is because of that DUI, the, the, the one, the accident. Yeah. Okay. Yep. And then I have to, well, how am I going to get 10 days off, you know, from work to go to jail? Like in my profession at the job where I worked, like, you know, 10 days off was not always approved. You know, how old are so, you right now, by the way, like at this point in time, I'm 26. Okay. So part of the, part of the program after you get a DUI is, okay, so I'm going to get a lawyer. I'm going to go, um, to jail, but I also have to do these ARD classes again. You know, they're going to make you do the, the driving course again, the safe driving. They're going to make you, they made me go to rehab after work. So I, um, which is like an outpatient. Yep. It's an outpatient four days a week. I think it's like three hours, three hours, um, each night. And they like randomly drug test you and, you know, test you for alcohol and they have requirements. Like you have to go to an AA meeting and, um, you have to, uh, get that signed, a piece of paper signed. So I'm like starting this. Um, I think at this point, I don't know if I had told my boss that I got a DUI. So you told you, you you told your boss, hey, I got a DUI. This might come up, and you're still drinking at the time. Yeah, yeah. I don't know if I had told her yet, or if it was maybe like a month or so later. But when I'm going through this um, rehab after work, which I did for months actually, um, they, you know, you sit around in a circle and you say how many days you have sober. And I remember this is like one of those pivotal. Um, really impactful memory that I have in early recovery where, you know, I'm still drinking tea. I'm still living with my mom. I do this rehab after work evaluation. I am lying through my teeth about yeah. how much I'm drinking. And that is when I'm thinking, oh, no. You know, it's just like I'm on the cusp of, of wanting to admit it, but I can't because I can't stop. Because, again, January two. 2005 is when the CUI happened and I'm doing, I'm still drinking. It's, it's March now. I'm, I'm doing this rehab after work and I'm still drinking and no one normal does that, Yeah, you know, and I wanted to not drink and I, I might've gotten a week. I don't remember. Like, I just remember not being successful at it. So I do this evaluation at rehab after work. My mom knows. Okay. My mom, of course knows. And so I come home and I drink with her that night. And I remember thinking, this is some fucked up shit. You know, like, again, looked a lot at mom and said, you know, you, sh you shouldn't be drinking. Yeah. <laughs> you know, I, I just got a second DUI. Like, it's very clear that we've got issues here. And, you know, but we're going to drink together anyway. You know? 
And, and um, there's it sounds like there's a lot of pain behind that drinking. Uh, for for probably yeah, both of us, you know, yeah. Was there yeah, anything? Definitely. Was there anything working at at the like the rehab after work, the outpatient that like aside from it sounds like that test you took that had a lasting impact. Was there any of the, the like the therapy aspects or any of the sharing or opening up that you can remember that you took with you into getting sober? Yeah. So what happened was, you know, at the beginning of these meetings, we would say how many days we had sober. And for a few weeks, I would look at my phone and I would count the days from the DUI and I would tell the group that's how many days I had sober. So I was showing up and I was lying, you know, and it just chipped away, chipped away at me because, um, you know, here I was. You know, knowing that I shouldn't be drinking anymore and then lying about how much I'm drinking or I'm sorry, lying about like my supposed sobriety date. Of course, this is my sobriety date. No one drinks after their second DUI. Well, you know, weeks go by and then I just, you know, fess up to the group and I just say, you know, I'm, I'm not, I'm not, I'm not sober. Um, how did that so, feel? Well, a really, um, it was a relief, Pete, huge relief. And scary. And I remember, like, around that same week, you know, I called my sister, who's, you know, sober. She had two years, she has two years more than me, so she was probably two years sober at the time. And I remember that night after the evaluation, coming home, drinking with my mom. I had a glass of wine in my hand, and I'm looking at myself in this mirror, this, you know, long mirror. And I got her on the phone. And, you know, she said, how did it go? My little sister, how did it go? Well, it was okay. It was good. You know, she's like, well, what do you think? Do you think you're um, an alcoholic? And I go, I don't know. This is where it gets so hard. She said, well, there's um, questions on the AA website. Why don't you just go and, and, and look at that? And so I did. And, you know, the answer was obvious. So I think, you know, um, I think that was, you know, probably the first time I admitted that I was an alcoholic and it was just like, shit, man, what am I going to do? You know? Those are those windows I talk about. I was uh, lying about, you know, being sober and a guy took me to a a restaurant and he said, you need to go to rehab. And I kind of just climbed through like this last God window that opened up for me. And just fell on the uh, over on the other side. Did you feel like at all you're talking to another, uh, you know, alcoholic? Did you feel like okay, maybe this is th- this is the way? There was no, there was definitely no relief at that moment. It was, it was shit. Am I, am I gonna do that? Am can I do this? Not, not like like I wanted to do it, but um, I just didn't know if I was capable because again, you have the second DUI. I'm losing my job, like. There's so much on the line. I'm going to jail and I'm still drinking. Like, you know, what else is going to stop somebody from drinking but that stuff, you know? And so, you know, I think saying it out loud was, was definitely like a pivotal moment, but it was I was still stuck in fear. And then weeks later when I admitted to the group, I think there, a burden was released a little bit. And then you, then you start hitting the meetings and like, you know, listening. So, like, part of this rehab after work is going to these AA meetings and, you know, because I'm living with my mom, I'm working downtown, and then I, my normal routine was, when I was drinking was, I'd come home and I would drink with my mom, and that, and then I would, you know, hang out with my friends on the weekend, and so now, I admit that I'm an alcoholic, I answer these questions, I'm, I'm fess up to the group. And what am I going to do now? Like, I can't go home. Mm. I can't, I can't be around the alcohol. I, I don't know what to do. So I end up going to meetings after rehab, after work. So I would literally fill my day up so that I could not be tempted. And so these early meetings for me were a lot, a, a lot, big, a big blur, you know, like, and they were filled with actually young people, um, and I didn't, um, like, relate a whole lot. But, again, like, I was just so scared and knew that, like, I had to get this 
otherwise I was F. I did not want to lose my job. You know, the writing was on the wall everywhere, and I didn't want to be an a-hole. You know what I mean? To yeah. my family, to my community, all that stuff. So, um, so yeah, so I start, I start hitting meetings, and, you know, at some point along the line, like, I get a sponsor. And I just want to hold on. I want to back, back up real quick. So that moment you're looking in the mirror, was that your last drink? What was my last? No. So you well, drank, so you drank no, it wasn't. after that. Yeah, I was. Yes. And actually I ended up relapsing. So that was like my, my last drink. But, um, <laughs> yeah, I don't. <laughs> Sounds about right. Sounds like an alcoholic. Yeah. Yeah. So you go yeah. to, all right, so we'll get back. So you go to meetings, you're going, it's a blur, but you're doing it to save your ass. Kind of like for me, I was just out of moves. And, uh, yeah. and, and so I, I, I went and then, and then you have a sponsor, you feel it working. That's for me. I felt it working. Did you have the same feeling? Yeah. Like I wanted it. I wanted it so bad. And, um, you know, again, like that first month there was just like a lot of panic and like, it's almost like you're walking around in a room and it's pitch dark. Like you've got to find your way out. That's kind of like what I was doing. I, was doing the rehab after work because they told me and I was going to meetings because they told me. Um, and then I started hitting meetings that I liked, you know, like the Saturday morning meeting. I went to a big book meeting on Monday night, a rewards meeting on Tuesday night. And I started seeing these people over and over again and they smiled and they knew my name. And that's when it started clicking for me. And so was this, this is after your relapse? No. So, because this is part of the process, like people need to hear this. So you have this light bulb that comes on. You're feeling, you're you're feeling great. Okay, go ahead. So I have the CUI in January. My first sobriety date was March 10th. Um, 2006. 2006. Yeah. So my first sobriety date is in March. I pick up the program. I'm not drinking. Like I get through the spring and I get through the summer and I'm still dabbling in this ex-boyfriend, you know? Mm -hmm. And, um, God, I feel like we keep getting sidetracked, but this is so interesting. So did you, was he a drug almost too? I mean, cause I've had, I had relationships like that and I've heard that before. Did you, you look at him as a drug looking back now? For sure. For sure. I remember looking up, um, like love addiction and stuff like that. Um, you know, I don't think that's what it was. I think that I was just so desperate for, um, something to fill me, you know, um, for love or from acceptance or security that, um, yeah, I just couldn't, couldn't let them go. Now, during that time from March, you know, till October, I, and totally working the steps. I get a sponsor. I meet with her once a week. Um, you know, I'm hitting meetings and I'm, and I'm liking AA. And, um, you know, the, the legal stuff is in the background, but of course, you know, when it comes to legal ramifications, that stuff takes months and months and months. So I'm just doing whatever I'm supposed to be doing. And, um, um, I would give, now this is way back. This is not Facebook era. This is MySpace era. <laughs> so I would like, I would like, you know, try to hack into his MySpace and find out, you know, who he's hanging out with and, you know, just like embedding myself in people's like comments and, and pages and trying to like find out information. Man, it w- I would be up late or early in the morning just obsessing over this. This became an obsession. Yeah. And I would... Um, Are you talking about it with anybody? Yeah, so I would give my sponsor, and that's that's a gift of the program. Yeah, like, totally. You know, they, they helped me. They, AA accepted me. I, you know, never felt judged and was told and taught and guided that, like, the truth will set you free. So I learned that and I would give the computer to the, my sponsor and, you know, I'm doing it again. And, you know, it was, 
it was um, very much like sobriety in that, you know, I kind of had to learn how to kick it, you Mm -hmm. know? Um, So what happened was um, I ended up drinking in October. It was my, one of my good friend's wedding. And this is crazy because, you know, um, even though I was sober, I, I still wasn't able to like, you know, do the right thing. I was, I think I, I told this guy that like I was drinking and then I went to this wedding and then I'm probably, I'm texting him on the side, like dramatic stuff. I don't, I don't know. Like, mm-hmm. I don't want to live, um, you know, just dramatic stuff. And I am late for the rehearsal I'm in the wedding, I'm late for the rehearsal because I have to stop. I, I've, I've picked up two bottles of wine. Okay. Yeah. And I rush inside my apartment to get ready one of the bottles breaks from the apartment i just like sweep it up with a towel start drinking fill up whatever in my purse and i'm gonna bring that to the rehearsal dinner and i'm um drinking it's not the rehearsal dinner i guess it was the wedding no yeah. this was rehearsal dinner because the next day is my sobriety date and that was the wedding i was so hungover so yeah like in the in the stall in the bathroom during the rehearsal dinner like i'm Drinking. Because everybody thinks and, you're supposed to be sober. Yeah. That is the worst yeah, my, of all time. I mean, yeah, yeah I, I've done that number when you're literally hiding from people that you're drinking or at drinking events because you're supposed to be sober. Like that's, how's that, you know, and that to me is the short sightedness of somebody that's just trying to feel good for the next five minutes. Like what's the end game there? Terrible, terrible. Then I don't tell anybody I drank. Then, you know, four months down the line, I'm ready to do my four step with my sponsor. My mom calls me and says, there's a, there's a letter for you here. And at this point, when I got sober, I actually ended up getting a condo, buying a condo. So I'm no longer living at my mom's house, but she, you know, this letter um, comes to her house. And you have this one time when you drink at the wedding and you don't drink again. No, I don't. So you're you're telling everybody you've stayed this sober for this big chunk of time, but you you really do relapse. Exactly. Yep. When you do your, if you have under a year in AA, you you know, raise your hand. Oh, I have eight months. Yeah. I have nine months. Yeah. I mean, I was doing that. Um, So, you know, I'm, my mom calls me when I'm literally on my way to like some mountaintop with my sponsor to do my four step and she, and, you know, pick up this certified letter and it's, um, ex-boyfriend's um, uncle who was a judge in a local county and basically it said if you don't leave him alone we're gonna um, press charges so I you know I I broke down to my sponsor I told her you know I was honest with her but I along these past months but I wasn't fully honest you know I was doing the best that I can um, but also still sick and so told her about my relapse and you know there you have that new sobriety date. And how did it feel to flush all that? Felt so good. And I, I was doing therapy like weekly with this guy did that for like two years that helped tremendously. And then you skip forward to, um, you know, me telling my boss, Hey, you know, like I need 10 days for jail. And she makes a joke and says, you know, I've never had to approve time off for somebody for jail, but I think we can do that. And (laughs) that was, that was huge for me, Pete. Like, I wanted to lie and say my mom had a heart attack. I wanted to, I wanted to lie about this and, you know, being sober, like that's just not the life you live anymore. And it takes time to figure out like, you know, like kind of like the right way. But the people in AA guided me and told me, no, you, you can't lie. You got to tell her. And, um, you know, she had known about the board. Um, and I ended up having to do like a drug and alcohol thing for two years. Um, I went what do you mean that she'd known about the board? Um, well, because I got that second DUI, I had to tell the licensing board that I got the DUI, and then they ended up putting me on like a professional monitoring program. Okay, gotcha. So I ended up, I ended up getting like um, random drug tests for two years. Um, did jail, did jail. I got a bunch of letters from people in Connecticut where my sister was living in AA. Send me letters. Uh, to jail. And I mean, I did it. I did it. I didn't have a license for two years. I did that. What did you do while you didn't have a license? Are you you still able to work or? 
Yeah, it was um, a very fond memory. I don't know if I would have told you that at the time, but like, you know, I would, I lived kind of near a bus stop and then the bus would bring me to Philly and, um, you know, God forbid, I, I would have to call this 1-800 number every morning for two years to see whether or not I got picked for a random drug test for this professional monitoring program in order for me to keep my license. And, you know, God forbid, I, I would have to get a test because I don't have a car. So then I got to take the bus to this place to get the drug test. And then I got to walk to the bus stop to get back to, you know, the hospital to work. And, um, you know, I told my boss all about that. You know, like, hey, I might be 15 minutes late, you know what I mean? Because I have to do this. And that is like, to me, that's so living in sobriety because like you need, for me, I needed to get broken down, right? I needed to live in like a recovery house. I needed to work at a KFC when I was, you know, in my thirties, I needed, I needed to be, you know, I just needed to be, and I needed the gift of desperation when I was drinking and using to be willing to go to any lengths, whether it's go to a bus stop to get to work for a job that I love, or whether it's go to a meeting or call somebody because I know I want to stay sober because not only is it terrible to go drink, but I love how this is starting to make me feel. Yeah. And there were so many God moments there. Like when, you know, of course with my boss and her accepting it and and me seeing that the truth actually does set you free, then I have to get, like out of jail and go on probation. And I remember thinking, well, I already used 10 days of vacation time. And, you know, like to go out to Westchester from Philadelphia, it would take me two hours on the bus. That's a long ride. Yeah. Then I have to get PTO time approved to see the probation officer. And I remember saying to the probation officer, like, I I just don't have a lot of PTO time left. Like, I love this job. I want to keep this job. And he's like, that's cool. Like when, you know, what's your bus stop? Oh, or and sometimes I would take the train. And he's like, "All right, well, why don't you take the train on Wednesday, and after work, and meet me at the Chestnut Hill Dunkin' Donuts right by the train, and we'll call that our visit." And I wow. was like, "Amazing! That's yeah. amazing!" Yeah, and th- that just- those are things like people start to work with you because people, I think, were just like when when you're an alcoholic, you're the last to know. For me. I don't know what I'm giving off sometimes. Like people see it in your eyes. They're like, oh, okay. Like she's, this is somebody who's telling the truth. There's that vibe that comes off people, which leads to like real conversations and real moments like you're talking about when, when, for me, when I actually got sober. Yeah. In the first year when I um, was fighting for my professional license and to keep it and had to go through all of that stuff, they, and before, because at one point, I got a letter from them and I didn't understand what it meant. And it, what it meant was you can't work until we approve that you can go back. So I'm at the hospital. I have a full caseload and I called this lady to get clarification. The next day after I got the letter and she goes, Oh no, no, you're not supposed to work. So I have to tell my boss I'm not allowed to work and I don't know when I'm going to be able to come back. The fact that she said, okay to that is crazy. Yeah. And then, you know, it was just like a waiting game. I get this lawyer and he's, you know, they're, they, they throw a spike of out on me, you know, because I'm pissed at this woman at the government office for not getting her shit together. And like, come on, I've got letters and, and sobriety and like, what, why are we dragging our feet? You know what I mean? And so she goes, you know, I think you, I think I should give you a, a psych of out. And I'm like, Oh, F you, you know? So, okay, so give you a what? What's go, it called? A psychiatric evaluation. Oh, a psych, a psych about. Okay, gotcha. So, so now I got to, okay, it's in Temple, in a bad part of Philly. I've got to figure out how I'm going to get there. Okay, no problem. I'm going to take the bus and the train and the, you know, walk and this and that. <laughs> and I get there. My lawyer is saying to me, um, you know, keep it short, Courtney. Keep it short. Only answer what they say. This guy is in AA. He's done a ton of pro bono work. Um, a, a, you know, the attorney a, is okay. A long, yeah, a long, long, long time member of, um, you know, AA, and you know, loved that guy. Loved that guy. Somebody but you, he, you, somebody you met in the meetings. Yeah, yeah, yeah. He heard, he heard about my case and all that, and he decided to help me. That's the kind of stuff that happens so, too. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Because I had gone through two lawyers before that. So, yeah. so what happens um, now? So, so take me up. So, so like, do you get the psych eval or you? Yeah, I get the psych eval and, you know, I have this direction from the attorney to say, you know, minimal. 
and I walk in and I'm so nervous, like, you know, my job and whether I can go back is essentially based on this kind of discussion, interview, assessment, whatever you want to call it. And I walk in there and there's three guys they are in white coats. You know, they're all doctors. They've got, you know, pens in their pockets and everything. And we sit down in this room. It's the four of us. And um, it turns out they're all in AA. And I tell them everything. I tell them about my relapse. I tell them about, like, everything. About how I tried to do my four-step and, you know, it was just crazy because the direction from the attorney is that you really shouldn't say much, you know, Yeah. you can get, you know, you just don't want to get into trouble or have anything delayed. And I spoke honestly and I spoke truthfully and it was just wonderful. And they said, of course you're ready, you know? And, um, so I, you know, ended up going back to work and, you know, there was just so much humility because in that time, in those two years of early recovery, People drove me to meetings. I had, you know, these doctors from AA that gave me the psych evaluation, like, tell me they're in recovery too. Like, professional, like, physicians, you know. Um, my boss who gave me time off to go to jail. These people in Connecticut that I didn't wrote know that, that, that wrote letters. Like, you know, and just learning how to be like a daughter to my mom, you know. She would bring me places. I remember just being in the car with her after she picked me up from the airport. I would take me up from the train station after work. And I remember her like kind of slamming on the brakes. She was kind of like an anxious driver. And it was just, I remember feeling like a visceral reaction of annoyance. Like, why are you pumping the brakes like that? Like, just chill. And I remember for the first time, like just not saying anything, (laughs) you know, and just giving her that grace and just being like, wow, something is working because, I would have just given her major left there and I did it, you know? Yeah. Um, and so it just, you know, sobriety, you know, has just kind of like, you know, progressed, ebbed and flowed, um, just kind of all kinds of changes. By the way, I read something today and this made me think of you. Um, it doesn't stop like the, like the meter or doesn't stop moving forward in sobriety. Talk, yeah. talk to me a little bit about how your life has evolved. Well, I ended up being able to change jobs, um, being honest about that issue with the, you know, the monitoring program and the DUI and um, going through my 20s and early 30s and trying to figure out dating. Very weird to, you know, be in a dating field and, and say, oh, do I tell them I don't drink? Do I tell them an AA? You know, do I tell them about sobriety? Like, when do I tell them? And there's a huge evolution in that. And what do you tell you know, other women that, that you talk to uh, in recovery about that, about early dating? How do you, what do you share? I mean, you've got to follow your heart and you've got to listen to the voice and you've got to listen to the, what the disease is saying. You know, like our, my disease tells me I'm not good enough, tells me I'm going to be judged, um, whatever. And you, when you are honest with another alcoholic, you know, you have your circle of women you um, are hitting meetings and talking to God, like that shit just takes care of itself and you don't have to worry about it. And that's what I say, you know, you have to continue to be honest with the people that are in your group though, because otherwise you're just stuck in your head and you're just, you're going to, you're going to keep on being sick. Yeah. And you're going to show up to, you're going to be wound pretty tight on any kind of date or, or, or interview process or anything like that. Yeah. So Courtney and I are tight. So she had started to date her husband. And it was very obvious that she was like falling in love with this guy. I wouldn't say love yet because it was very early. Court, I can remember. I don't even know. I've told you this. I can remember. And this is good AA. I'm sober. You're sober. I was living in Louisiana. You were calling me and we were talking about, you're like, I'm just not sure if he likes me. He didn't like make a move. And I remember thinking like, trust me, he likes you. And here you are married with the kid, right? Yeah. That is the beauty of sobriety. I'm like, I know he likes you. And let me tell you, I've had a million conversations with other dudes and other women in AA about the same exact thing with you recently. So it's just so it's that is such a beautiful thing to be able to bounce stuff off people and and, and have it be so real because there's a uniqueness about one alcoholic to another. I know exactly the fear. I know exactly the self-doubt. I know exactly that negative self-talk. And I also know 
what's the beautiful stuff that's on the other side when you break through that bullshit because that's what it all is. Yeah. Yeah, we are we are so fortunate that it just cuts we cut right to the chase or we already know we already know we don't even have to talk about it. Yeah. Relationships are so hard and I think like right now with um you know my recovery journey it's it's about marriage. It's about, you know, um changing for my marriage. Now I have a 4-year-old, so when I had this baby, first of all, I got I found Brian and I was like, "Bam, you're it." all right, let's have a baby. All right, let's get married. So we, and we bought a house all in a year because I am impulsive and I am determined and I want all this stuff. And he signed on and it's ironic that he signed on because like, he's very trigger shy. Like he's, you know, will take a while to like buy something big. And, you know, he's just a very cautious guy, which is one of the reasons why I married him. Cause it's kind of like <laughs> the opposite of me. <laughs> he's safe that way. But anyway, you know, we just had this crazy, crazy year. And you, you know, like I have struggled. I, I was not hitting meetings. Um, and I had, you know, oh man, it's just, a, it was a lot to deal with. And when you're not hitting meetings, it's just terrible. It was terrible. I hit rock bottom. Um, I didn't know if my marriage was going to last, you know, and what happened was I, I, um, called a woman in AA and I said, I am, I am at my wit's end. You know, um, I don't think that drinking really, you know, you never know. You never know. It's, it's the monkey on your back. You could turn around and all of a sudden you'll be drinking alcohol. And I've always respected that. So, you know, and I've had flashes of where I've like wanted to drink after breakups and stuff, but nothing that has really, um, you know, scared me too much, you know, it's a healthy fear. Yeah. But anyway, I'm in this marriage and I'm, I'm just like desperate. It's just rock bottom. And this woman teaches me how to do a 10 step, um, daily, which is basically an inventory on myself and to recognize the patterns that I was, I had in this marriage that were just devastating my marriage, you know? Yeah. Um, and if you're and, going to meetings every day, you pick up on that behavior um, when you're doing a 10th step. I mean, it's always good to practice a 10th step, whether you're going in that inventory, whether you're going to meetings or not. But for me, I get so far removed from that behavior that it's like I'm just so disconnected that I can allow myself to get so far left. And I need to. Yes. And, and so when somebody says take an inventory, I'm like, yeah, me? <laughs> it's like, yeah, dude, you. Yeah, or I, or I just don't feel like it. Yeah. You know? And I think the big thing about meetings and, and sticking with like the fellowship of AA and getting your clan is that they keep you accountable and, you know, kind of like teach you how to do right. Because again, I mean, I didn't have role models for marriage. You know, my first thought is wrong and I'm a selfish human being and I couldn't see like my side. And if you can't see your side, then you're not going to change. So how did you get back to that place? Was the inventory what helped you get well? Because I remember you talked to me about this. Yeah, like you, yeah. You, you talked to me about you upped your meetings. Totally upped my meetings and prayed every day, multiple times a day, and did the writing. And that righted my shit big time. What does untreated alcoholism look like for you? I guess you just told me. Yeah. <laughs> it's, it's like, it's just outward blame. It's for me, it's anger, it's discontent, it's impatience. I mean, those three things are big for me when I'm not hitting meetings. What do you tell like a newcomer that's not sure? I was at a meeting today where a girl said, uh, I think I'm an alcoholic. And I, you know, I'm not going to go up and talk to her unless she wants to talk to me. But like, you know, if it's a younger dude, maybe I'll do it. But what do you tell, yeah. what do you tell somebody? Well, if I... Well, first of all, you like want to reach out to them and just welcome them and same sex is encouraged. So I, I think that's a good point. Um, but like if I'm, if I, if someone's saying that to me, I'm going to say, well, you know, I said the same thing. And I looked at that, those questions. I mean, cause that was my personal experience, you know? And then if you're, if you're working with somebody that says that you want to like sit down and do like, 
you know, more work on it. It's just like, all right, well, write down all the things that you did that you didn't wish you did when you were drinking or when you were hungover. You know, the list is long for me. You're talking to me today. You're living like, just like what we're doing now. Um, you're living in the solution. You know, like you, you work like, like life is not easy. It's hard. You work on your marriage. You have, you have a child. I mean, like your life is full. I talked to you about this. What does your life look like if you're drinking? Um, I definitely like shudder to think that about that. And I, I've, I've thought about that a lot this past year with like the quarantine. Um, I'm divorced. I am angry. My child doesn't want to be near me. I am alone, you know, and I probably don't have a job. I, I probably might've killed somebody in the car. Cause even though I, I have repercussions from DUIs, like I am that idiot that's going to go and get in the car when I drink again. Anything else? This is fantastic. Uh, I, I don't want to keep you all day. You were really good. You're really good. <laughs> Anything. It's so funny, Court. Like you kind of started off speaking softly and then all of a sudden it's like, boom. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, I was a, nervous. You did a, a phenomenal job. Thanks, Pete. You made me uh, very comfortable. I can't wait to hear it. I'm so nervous. <laughs> like, ah. You were awesome. All right, love you. All right, love you too. Bye. Thanks so much for listening to The Payoff with Pete. Once again, I'm Pete Souza, And of course, we are part of the Rogue Media Network. All kinds of good podcasts you can find at roguemedianetwork.com. And of course, you can find this podcast and all those other ones wherever you get your podcasts, iTunes, Spotify, other spots like that. This has been a Rogue Media Podcast.